Hey, this is Josh Taransky with the I Love Humans podcast. This podcast was actually ready to be published a couple of weeks ago. And right before I put it up online, I heard a podcast episode by my friend Albert Miller about his own brother's struggle with addiction. And the audio was so powerful, I wanted to take some time to make sure we included it in this podcast. I talked to him, I got his permission. So before we jump into this week's episode about addiction recovery in Southeast Baltimore, I want you to hear this short anecdote from Albert Miller. His podcast is called Yogi Albert Speaks, uh, and you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and Anchor FM. Today and the last couple of days have been very trying because I've been looking into finding about my brother and I finally he turned up and came home. He has a extreme drug problem. When he came home, he had made his decision that he wanted to go to the hospital, which is where he's at now. And as we talked, he smoked his cigarette, got into the car, He was transported to the hospital. I knew and I could see from the blotches on his skin and abscesses in his hands that the drugs had really taken him down. But I didn't realize the total devastating effect until he just urinated on himself, couldn't control his urination once he got into the hospital. So my sister went home, picked up some more clothes, came back. And since he only has one leg, he went into the bathroom and helped him take off his clothes and everything. And when I got to his feet, I was in total shock because I saw maggots coming out of his foot. I was hurt. I wanted to cry. I wanted to scream. But I couldn't show that. I had to be strong for him and myself. And I just let him know, look, man, I love you. You know what you need to do for yourself. And you know you need to be focused on what's important to you. Doesn't matter what I say or anyone else, but you got to get yourself healthy and it's going to take you time. I didn't become addicted to cocaine until cocaine was my drug of choice was in 86 or 87. So I would be 24, 25. And it, but it didn't take long for me to hit a bottom. When I say bottom, I mean dirty, stinking, smelling, uh, and basically homeless. I mean, I had somewhere to go, but that I didn't do that at home. I kept it away from my house. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the I Love Humans podcast. That was the voice of Stanton Lewis. He's going to be one of the characters we're following in the story today. He's from, grew up in Southeast Baltimore, 
and uh, he was vulnerable enough and willing to share his own story of addiction recovery. And that's what we're going to be focused on in this episode. As you know, with the I Love Humans podcast season one, we're looking at people care in Southeast Baltimore. We've talked about how the homeless are cared for, uh, youth employment, workforce development. Uh, we're having a great time just exploring uh, these various aspects of people being cared for in our local community. So this time I went out and I did some research on addiction recovery. In fact, I put up a post on Facebook asking, you know, who should I talk to? Got a great response. If you posted there, I at least tried to follow up with whatever you recommended there. There's a lot going on. So I can pretty much guarantee that you will not agree or not necessarily like uh, one of the people we interview. I think I did um, almost 10 hours worth of interviews for this particular episode, which is too much. Uh, and that's why it's taken me a couple weeks to get this out. But my hope and, and the goal is to give you something um, of value that you can translate into your own experience here in Southeast Baltimore, understand how to help people who may be facing addiction within your sphere. Let's go back to Stanton for a second. Let him finish up sharing about his original addiction that he was wrestling with. Uh... Uh, my drug, like I said, my my drug of choice was cocaine, and when I did the first one, there was like a bells and whistles going off in my head, and from then on out, I was trying to chase that first feeling that it ever gave me, but I never got it back. Most addicts are chasing that first feeling, because that that first feeling they get from it is some type of super euphoria, and the dopamine just kicks off in a different direction, and you're you're geared in it. All your snapses are geared to chase that. I mean, heroin is more physical, but a lot of people who do heroin will tell you that uh, it's about the euphoria, the warmness, the feeling loved, uh, you know what I'm saying, just feeling at peace with yourself. Now, I did this interview with Stanton at the Helping Up Mission, where he's currently enrolled, and he's going to go on to share some more of that story in just a minute. But before we get too deep into Stanton's story, I want to introduce you to two of the staff members at Helping Up who are going to explain this program. Now, you may have driven by the Helping Up Mission. It's off Baltimore Street, right before you get down to the Shot Tower and President Street. Here's Vic and Kirk. I'm originally from Baltimore, born here in Baltimore City, um, but my parents uh, moved out to Howard County, so I was raised out in Howard County and uh, went to the school system out there. Um, played sports, did a lot of music, did a lot of different things out there. Um, and then at a point in my life, um, around college years, I um, started using drugs, mainly just alcohol and maybe smoking marijuana every now and then. But because I was playing football, I didn't really use a lot. Um, but after the football and I got injured, um, doctors put me on pain medications. And um, not long after that, um, my brother was using um, pretty hardcore street drugs and he started introducing me to those things and I uh, stopped you know from the prescriptions and just started using the street drugs so I was stuck out there for about 15 years um, of active addiction um, and then I came here to the Help No Mission and uh, changed my life. Yeah. Um, it just transformed me from from seeing myself as a just no good person and just worthless to it gave me some hope gave me um an idea that, you know, I do still have life in me. So um, I just started getting really um, poured into pl this place here and met a lot of cool people and 
uh, my whole mindset just changed and I just started really focusing on the things that I can do better in my own life um, which was you know dealing with my family my marriage um, and just becoming a better man the man that I believe God intended for me to be um, so I grew spiritually here I got really involved in the Bible and started doing a lot of the Bible studies got involved with the choir and the band here and um, just went from there and um, you know now I work here I've been here going on three years working and um, over four years clean and sober and it's just been a blessing hmm. and what's your official title my official title is the spiritual life coordinator do chapel services wow. I direct the choir and the band here as well now so um, it's a lot of different pieces to it <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's awesome how about you Vic what's your bio uh, I'm Vic King uh, I'm I'm not a graduate of the program uh, over I think still over 60% of our staff are uh, graduates of the of the spiritual recovery program, uh, but I'm 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 one of the normies. Uh, I I grew up on a farm on the eastern shore, ran as far away from that as I could. Uh, went to NYU for a while and ended up back here uh, in Maryland. Went to ended up going to seminary part time at night while I was doing that, and uh, came here as a chaplain th over three years ago now. Yeah, love it. I, I do some of the same things Kirk does as far as teaching classes and and uh, coordinate some retreats and uh, other cool opportunities for the guys. But then I also uh, do some uh, creative stuff, uh, produce a the Helping Up podcast and uh, and some very occasional videos uh, for our YouTube channel and stuff like that. I asked Vic to share a little bit of the history behind Helping Up Mission. Here's what he said. Sure. Yeah, I can give it a little nutshell. I mean, it's 130, what, started in 1885, which makes it how old now? 133? Mm-hmm. Close my math, enough. My math is bad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's old, uh, older than any of us sitting here, uh, and sometimes moves at the speed of a 130-some-year-old <laughs> person. Uh, but it, but it's, it's, um, it's gone through a lot of transformations. I think when it started, it was basically kind of a classic sort of gospel rescue mission, homeless shelter soup kitchen type deal. Um, did did a lot of different things as far as families and uh, kids and uh, women up until I think the 50s, the 1950s was was when they started focusing exclusively on men because that's um, mainly who was homeless at the time. And then in the early 90s, sort of the tail end of the um, uh, first big wave of the drug epidemic, um, the board uh, decided like we need to shift focus <laughs> to addiction, you know, um, more specifically, or in, in, in some ways sort of upstream from homelessness. Uh, and so they started this year-long residential spiritual recovery program um, that's really kind of grown to become the main thing that Helping Up does. Uh, we've got, what, like about 350 men? Yes, roughly around 350, sometime more, of course. But um, I believe around 1996 when Bob Gaiman uh, came aboard, uh, they started transitioning to the spiritual recovery program which is where we are now, where um, we can house up to um, close to 500 men 
um, on a daily basis where we serve them meals and we provide um, recovery and spiritual recovery classes during the day um, and it's a great place to just really get back in touch with who you are and and and, and besides the drugs and the alcohol um, it just really gets gets you to a place of understanding who you are again as an individual hmm. has it geographically always been here on Baltimore Street uh, Pretty much for, for a while, yeah. but but it's been it's been a years. number of different places. I'm I'm not I'm not the home historian. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. All the different locations. It's mainly it's been kind of around downtown. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I mean, in the 20, 20 plus years that the recovery program has been going, it, it is it is not it's not only grown numerically. It's grown sort of in in uh, in complexity, like in a good way. It's 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 become this really I think remarkably holistic uh, program so you know it's not just sort of recovery classes there's mental health counseling there's medical care available on site you know if guys don't already have a, a primary uh, that they that they're that they want to stay with um, there's awesome education and workforce development uh, team that that has I think I think uh, in the last couple years uh the median wage of the guys that we connect the guys that we place the guys that we connect with jobs has gone up from like 10 or 11 to like 16 wow. an hour uh, so it's much more kind of liberal wage type stuff and and also a lot of those with benefits and cool education stuff a lot of guys get their geds while they're here if they didn't already have a high school diploma and a lot of other guys go to college or go back to college um, we've got a bunch of cool partnerships in that space um, and, and so it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very kind of coordinated care, you know, whole person approach to yeah. recovery. We'll go back to the helping up mission, Kirk Wise, Vic King in a little bit, but I want to head east down Baltimore street to Powell recovery. Powell is a really an intense program. They're very visible because their clients are often on the street between Baltimore and Lombard off Broadway. And the CEO of Powell is Kim Weierman. Here she is. I'm Kim Weierman. I'm um, President and CEO of Powell Recovery Center here on uh, Broadway, 14 South Broadway in Baltimore City. Awesome. And is this the only Powell in the city? Or is this one of others? It is. We have one location. We do all our treatment here. Um, but we also provide crisis housing. So we have crisis housing in various places around the city. Okay. And how? what's the history of Powell? Are you the founder well, of it? Powell started, no, I'm not. I've been here since 2003. We were founded in 1994. Um, and uh, our founders, two founders worked uh, through about 2013. And then... Uh, retired and uh, um, I took over at that point. I had been here working as um, a clinical social worker uh, and then in various roles uh, overseeing uh, the, our clinical operations. Um, we have always been an addictions treatment center and uh, in uh, 2009 we also began providing uh, psychiatric and mental health treatment in a more formal way to our clients. Uh, so now we're, we're a dual recovery, we call it a dual recovery facility where we're able to treat both addictions and mental health um, and to address what we see as 
some of the gaps in, um, in need for our clients. We treat public health clients in Baltimore City. Mm. So uh, those clients come to treatment and they have a lot of other social gaps. Um, and we know that, um, that uh, um, food, housing, safety, are essential components of anybody's health care mm. and of anybody's well-being and uh, of anybody's ability to change. So we try to address those as well. Um, so we provide a lot of crisis service um, that our clients need and uh, we, we try to provide it as quickly as possible. There's a term called treatment on demand. Mm. And so we try to take that, uh, we've always taken that really seriously. Now, we're not open 24 hours a day, so um, we can't provide treatment on demand uh, at any time during the day, but when we're open, and we're open from uh, eight in the morning to uh, about nine at night, um, we're answering phones from uh, about eight in the morning to six at night, and we hope to expand that uh, Monday through Friday. As Kim is describing the Powell program and recovery and housing, I'm looking at her wall, which is a massive whiteboard with all these scrolled objectives on there and vision and future. And and they've got a lot of things that are, that are taking place. Their program is growing. And I want you to hear that from Kim herself. Uh, but let's take a break for just a second from Powell. Go back to Stanton because I, I want you to hear um, how he progressed and uh, just a little bit more about his recovery and eventual relapse into drugs. In 1993, uh, I hit a, it didn't take long for me to hit a bottom. I was out, you know, ripping and running around Southeast Baltimore for like two or three years before I finally hit a bottom. And I came out of, uh, we called them an abandoned minimum. My mom saw me coming out. She asked me what I was doing and I told her. And, but when I came out, there was something different happened. I, I, said, I said three little words. Actually, God, please help me. It was those were those four words that, that sat me on a path uh, of actually, I, from where I was to greatness. Because everything came around full circle. I got clean in 93, and I stayed clean until 2012 or 13. I relapsed. I raised a family. I bought homes. I, I ran a company with over 200 employees. Uh, I was making over $100,000 a year with bonuses and incentives. I was uh, a construction manager for a large uh, finishing contractor. I would drive from Baltimore and go to, say, Norfolk, uh, leave, leave the job sites on Norfolk and drive down to Fayetteville, down to Fort Bragg, get a place to leave from there and go up to, you know, if I, we were doing a, a uh, Virginia Tech University. I would just do a sweep and then come back and I and I would get up the next, uh, if I was gone two days, I would start doing what I had, had in D.C. and in Maryland. Uh, I would literally sit there every night and move 200 people around. I, I was going to meetings, something happened in my life, and instead of calling somebody from Narcotics Anonymous, I ran to a doctor. And the doctor put me on Zoloft, and Xanax, and I didn't know what Xanax was. It, and to come to find out it's not a good thing because they didn't have that when I was a kid. You just said you're suffering from anxiety and depression. Take one of these a day, take two of these a day. And that's what I did. Uh, and the doctor knew, because I've been there before, he was my family doctor, that I was in Narcotics Anonymous. 
uh, and that everything that he gives me had to be non-narcotic. But I was so caught up in myself, pity and pain, I didn't ask him what this was. It wasn't his fault, it was my fault. Because I basically was so pained up, I was willing to do and take anything not to feel that pain that I felt mm. when I was that child of being insecure and not being able to stand within, the own, not my own skin, but the own color of my skin. Uh, that's how my disease of addiction started when I was a child, wanting to be something that I wasn't and not liking what I saw back in the mirror. Mm. Because it wasn't like uh, Joey or Tommy or Brian or Lamont. It was just different. Uh, when there were so many of them, so many of there, and just me sitting by myself. So I forgot the pain I caused. Uh, I had tweaked my back and I was going by a family member's house and they said, well, if you hurt, and the doctor gave me some of these and I started taking them. Uh, so between the Xanax and the pain pills, I lost three cars in my home, my wife, and the only thing that I didn't lose I lost everything. I lost my way of life. I lost everything. The only thing I didn't lose was the love of my daughter and my family. So I'm not going to leave it there, obviously. We'll come back to Stanton. I want you to hear about how he's going through recovery and what that looks like for him. But let's jump back over to Powell. And I want uh, Miss Wireman to share with you about their process, the, the phases of treatment that they take their clients through. Our clients are typically entering in that intensive phase of treatment where, where the doctors here are um, uh, uh, assessing and treating them uh, and treating the withdrawal symptoms. Um, uh, because, you know, we find if you can successfully treat withdrawal symptoms, people can stay in treatment yeah. one more day, wow. um, uh, two more days, three more days. Um, so literally, that's what we are. And then during that intensive treatment phase, um, uh, so the first day you see the doctor, the nurse, you get a complete psychosocial. Uh, we assess you if you need food, you're getting your food supply, um, and um, you're getting your personals, uh, uh, shampoo. Uh, then you're getting, if you choose our crisis housing, you're getting your pillow, your blanket, a few of those things. If you need, you're getting some uh, basic clothing mm -hmm. because our clients are not presenting with any of that. Yeah. Um, and so um, we found that we can't, um, we found that the best way to do that is to do it ourselves. Um, and so we do. So that first day, all of that, uh, as well as your first uh, uh, visit with the doctor in order to begin treating your withdrawal symptoms uh, occurs. And so during that intensive phase, the next day um, you're beginning in group to work on um, staying clean one more day mm. at the beginning just staying clean one more day um and um uh managing cravings with very simple tools um uh, that intensive phase lasts for about 10 days and then you really begin group work where we we ask the client to look at their past use uh and to try to bring insight about a pattern of use to look at what relapse prevention theory calls the triggers around that use and how to establish a response to those triggers, how to rehearse that response, how to share the successful responses that you've had um, in a group setting. And also after that intensive phase, you begin um, 
uh, a smaller um, dual recovery group where uh, clients are exploring their mental health symptoms, uh, the pattern of those symptoms, the triggers for those symptoms and how they are similar or different to the um, triggers for relapse, coping mechanisms for those triggers, and the interaction of those mental health signs and symptoms and triggers mm. with their addiction. So um, we also, once our clients are ready for those groups, have a grief and loss group, an anger management group, uh, as well as a traumatic lifestyle group. Because many of our clients have experienced a very traumatic life mm. uh, um, as part of their addiction. So we see those as really meaningful components in the first six months overall. Overall, we call the first six months a really intensive phase of treatment. Every one of these programs have their phases, and so that's a pretty good description of at least Powell's phase. Um, we're going to come back to Powell in a second, but I want to move north geographically up Broadway to 911 Broadway, which is a Johns Hopkins rehab facility. I'm going to introduce you to a doctor and also to a social worker that works out of the facility there at 911 Broadway. I'm Dan Buccino. I'm the clinical manager here at the Broadway Center. I'm a clinical social worker, and for the past 20 plus years I worked in community psychiatry at Bayview, also in southeast uh, Baltimore. So um, I know the mental health field, I know southeast um, Baltimore, but I'm relatively new to the um, addictions treatment um, space, and it's been um, fascinating and very interesting and very inspiring working mm. working here over the past year or so. Wow. Okay. My name is Vinay Parekh. Uh, I'm co-medical director here at the Broadway Center for Addiction. Uh, I'm on the faculty at Johns Hopkins um, University School of Medicine, the Department of Psychiatry uh, and Behavioral Sciences. Um, and then my other hat is that I also direct the um, adult psychiatric emergency services over at the hospital. So we see a lot of patients either coming through the emergency department or through my work here that have problems with addiction. So my, my interest is really about uh, patients in the community that have addiction. Um, I do a lot of work here in terms of helping with medication assistance, in terms of treatment here, um, seeing patients when they come in for a history and physical. So anyone that comes into our program has to come to our health suite for a full history and physical so that we know what issues they have, how we can coordinate care, um, and then provide them with options for treatment, uh, whether that be medication or no medication. So we have patients here that are on different types of medication or none at all for their addiction. Um, so part of my job is to discuss those options with them. Okay. The, um, on the street, this is known as 911 Broadway. Right. But that's not its official title. What is the name of this place? Yeah, we prefer to call ourselves the Broadway Center for Addiction. Okay. 911 just has a little bit some unfortunate um, associations. Yeah. So the Broadway Center, we're, we're the Broadway Center. And what, what is here? Like, how would you describe what's available here? So we're an outpatient substance abuse program that provides 
um, groups, um, individual counseling. Um, we have um, our substance abuse recovery program. So this program um, in the past used to be um, um, a clinic for, for just women, and then it became um, a methadone clinic. Um, and then as we've had more and more medication options for treatment, uh, we've expanded so that our services are pretty pretty wide. So we offer um, not just groups and counseling, but we, like I said before, we can offer medication assistance, but not just for opiate use disorder. So we see patients with alcohol use disorder, cocaine use disorder, marijuana use disorder. Um, so it's really any substance use disorder we can manage in this program. Um, and because we're part of Johns Hopkins um, Medicine, we can coordinate care with primary care clinics, psychiatric, mental health clinics. Um, so in many ways, we're kind of like, we see, often see ourselves as like the center of care for many of our patients and we're coordinating them out to other kinds of healthcare because they're often coming to us when they have none. Um, and we're kind of their entry point into the healthcare system. So we tend to offer it all. Um, on, the, on the street, a lot of people see that we have, we'll say that we have housing as part of our component, which makes it a little bit different from other programs. Um, there are other programs that provide supportive housing. Um, so here in this building, we don't have any housing, but we coordinate care with Helping Up Mission, and um, effectively the hospital leases some beds from Helping Up Mission um, so that we can have those beds available for people coming into our outpatient program when they first come in for supportive housing, because many of them have no housing. Okay. Um, and, and so we tend to attract a lot of patients that are also transfers from other programs where one of their needs in the outpatient world is not being met, i.e., you know, housing, um, supportive housing, um, a safe place where they know there aren't going to be drugs and alcohol. So just to prove that it's one big happy family, you have the Broadway Center renting beds from Helping Up Mission. And one other interesting connection is that Kim Wireman from Powell used to work for Dan at the Broadway Center. Let's go back to Kim because she's got a really interesting tidbit about the, the current drug of choice on the street. About 18 months ago, uh, about 80% of our clients presented with heroin dependence, severe chronic, and the, te the technical term is opiate dependence, but heroin dependence. Um, and that was the case for many, many, many years. Um, about 18 months ago, that switched to fentanyl dependence and what we've seen, um, we don't have real solid hard numbers yet, we're working on those, but. Um, what we've seen is about 50% of our clients now are presenting with um, positive for fentanyl, uh, a bootleg fentanyl. Um, and so um, uh, um, now our clients are presenting for fentanyl dependence. makes them clinically a little more um, complex. Uh, fentanyl is stronger than heroin. Um, uh, and um, because there's a huge fentanyl supply that's hit the streets in Baltimore City, um, the price of, of fentanyl is much cheaper than heroin used to be. Uh, fentanyl's stronger. Um, our clients tell us the withdrawal symptoms are different. And so but that's by way of saying that a lot of our clients are presenting with a lot more clinical impairment and their withdrawals, uh, their, treating their withdrawal symptoms is a little more complicated. I asked a similar question at the Broadway Center. I wanted to know from Dan, as he looked at the treatment going on at the Broadway Center, what were some of his concerns? The thing that strikes me the most moving over here is the level of stigma still about uh, people with substance use disorders, addiction problems, addiction treatment. It, it, 
feels probably like psychiatry a hundred years ago, um, when where there's just so much stigma, so much mythology, so much you know, kind of not that faith-based approaches don't have a place, but there's almost in, in some quarters a really anti-scientific. Um, approach. There's a, a real resistance in, in many quarters to medication-assisted treatment, which I have seen here be enormously helpful and enormously successful, especially with the opioids. The methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone, I think, really allows people to, you know, reduce cravings in such a way that they can then really start to work on some other um, kinds of kinds of issues, but you know the the treatment community can't agree on the place of medication assisted treatment. Other people in recovery can't you know agree about you know whether you're really even in recovery if you take methadone. Um, the twelve step groups in the community seem to be all over the place about. Um, supporting patients on medication-assisted treatment. And so I think what that leads to is just a, a lot of, of, of stigma, which makes it even harder for our patients to come to treatment, yeah. to stay into treatment, to work through all the issues that they need to work through to rebuild their, mm. rebuild their lives. Mm. And it's, it's much stronger here than mm-hmm. in the mental health space. Stanton Lewis has gone through recovery twice. Here's his accounting of the first recovery. When I got clean in 93, I was 28. But in actuality, I was like maybe 16 years old. Uh, I had no developmental or social skills. And I learned all that, I hate it. And, and I'm very glad I learned it in the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. I went to meetings every day. I became part of that program. Uh, you know, uh, doing H&I's, hospitals and institutions. In Baltimore City at that time, we had four districts in Baltimore City and I was district chair. Uh, We had the Indian Center on Broadway. I gave back by uh, sitting on that board down there and trying to save that building. And they voted me as uh, chairman of the board. And I served on that board for like seven, eight years. So I was doing work. I was on the board at the Indian Center. I was doing commitments for Narcotics Anonymous. It was a full life. My addiction was still there, but I was I was addicted. You know, I you know it was, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but all the energy I spent ripping and running and chasing by any means necessary to get high, I was ripping, running, and chasing to do any mean necessary not to get high, giving back. I mean, uh, you know, uh, when I said God, please help me, Narcotics Anonymous is, is a uh, is a spiritual program that's very God centered. Mm. Uh, the 12 steps, if you actually think about it, come out of the Bible. You know, they're in there. You just got to, you know, read, you know, go in depth and find it. But I got involved in Narcotics Anonymous for a lot of years. Now, you've already heard from Stanton about his relapse and how a doctor prescribed to him some drugs that were not the best for him and his addiction. Uh, here's his account of his second recovery. When I lost my house, uh, I had to go somewhere. And so I had my mom was still up on um, Deer Street. Uh, and she gratefully let me, you know, move back in. Uh, because for all those, those 18 years that I was actually a productive member of society, 
I did a lot of good things for a lot of people because that's what God has put upon my heart. Long story short, once I'd lost myself again in the disease, I couldn't ask for help. I couldn't stop. So I lost everything. Instead of stopping soon, I mean, everything that was inside me that stopped 18 years prior was back there with a vengeance. It, it didn't start off slow and easy. It started off hard and fast. Uh, and I was doing drugs that I didn't do. You know, I thought maybe I was okay because I didn't do cocaine anymore. I was doing opiates. I was eating pills. Little did I know that the steady progression of those things would overcome me. I was, I was doing, you know, you started off taking one or two pills a day, eventually, tended to cost you 10 $15, eventually you were taking three, $400 worth of pills. But I was so caught up in self and trying to, again, trying to subdue the pain deep inside my gut, uh, that none of it mattered anymore because I was back caught up in the grips of active addiction. So I moved home with mom, I, God put it upon my heart, not to have my mother go through the pain or bearing her child. That's the only thing that kept me going was for me not to give her that pain that I've been suffering and let her suffer the same pain. It, that I couldn't do that. So I, I raised my hand, I made a few phone calls and I came down and saw the Helping Out mission. Uh, I didn't know nothing about it. I had no clue that it existed. Uh, on. April the 24th, it was a Tuesday, I came in. I don't know why I just came in, just to look at the place, it didn't matter. Uh, I guess I, I want, you know, since I, I thought I had, you know, I did things in life that I was special, and I'm not special. I came in on the 25th, and I've been here since April the 25th. And yesterday I had 90 days, hmm. uh, celebrated 90 days, I didn't celebrate it, but yesterday was my 90 days. Well, congratulations to Stanton Lewis on his 90 days. That's awesome. We're excited for him and grateful to Helping Up Mission for their role that they've played in his life. Um, I want to introduce you to one more recovery agency that's here in Southeast Baltimore. And by no means do the four that we've looked at cover all of them. There's probably another four that we could have talked with. But but this last one is... Uh, called Teen Challenge. It's north of Highland Town by a couple of blocks, and they have a new director on site named Alex. Okay, the, the center is, uh, I think it's uh, situated in, uh, in, in the right place. Uh, we have a, a high activity of drugs uh, usage in the area. It is uh, a small center, but at the same time it's uh, uh, us, we can hold small groups, we can attend our students in a more personal way than in bigger centers like the centers where I came from, uh, where we had up to induction centers uh, that I came from had 50 students and only four staff members. So uh, our contact and our personal relationship with staff members were at a minimum as opposed to here. Uh, it is an amazing uh, uh, time to be able to really come close to the student and really uh, pour into his life uh, what Christ has poured into us through other uh, leaders and men of God that believe that uh, it is the solution, that Jesus Christ is the solution to the drug epidemic. Uh, uh, and it is a battle. What we do is we serve 
we serve uh, uh, diligently and we fight what we believe is not against uh, flesh and blood, meaning flesh and blood is the person itself. We uh, battle this fight in the spirit. Uh, we believe that addiction uh, is a, a an issue that has to do with the uh, 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 spiritual realm of darkness and Jesus Christ uh, when we receive him as our Lord and Savior uh, because he paid the price at, at the cross in Calvary uh, he freed us. In other words, he paid the price and delivered us from that bondage. Alex went on to share his own personal story about how he, his life had been at a low point. He was addicted to substances as well and about to kill himself. And he talks about how he had an encounter of faith with God and how that set him on a trajectory of being recovered from substances and then working with Teen Challenge. So again, they're located over on the eastern side of Patterson Park, like northeastern corner of Patterson Park. In a few of these conversations, I was able to ask how the community can give back, how they can participate, how we as neighbors can be a part of caring for those that are addicted. Here's what Helping Up Mission had to say. Well, um, like Vic was just sharing, um, every Friday at 1.30 we have a chapel service in our chapel where guys are phasing up and we have grads and, and, and um, the new guys coming in the program. But that's an opportunity where you can come down, um, kind of see a little bit of the facility, see what we do, um, and experience some of the guys, you know, coming in and different things we do here. Um, also, in our philanthropy department, you can call us and we can um, set you up with um, a, a gentleman named Barry Burnett who handles all, like, if you want to come serve a meal, um, if you just want to get a tour of our campus, um, you can come down and, and have those um, resources available to you as well. Um, and sometimes for guys even that may want to just see our campus, you can come down on those tours as well and, and kind of get a look at what we have and what we do if you're even thinking about coming into the program. Um, so it's just a good way of you know connecting as well um, there. But um, if anyone wants to just, you know, we always send out, we accept donations of course all the time. Um, and the community has been a great, great asset to us as far as um, providing. So if you want to just give to us, we accept that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a ton of different ways to give, you know, not just financially, but in-kind stuff, you know, clothing donations toiletries um yeah we, we we're very open with that well we even i mean we accept books um but i you know volunteer wise so we have almost every day we've got folks volunteers helping serve meals um which is an easy easy way to start but i'm all about trying to get folks connected more relationally um and we've got our education and workforce people coordinate a lot of tutoring yes. uh, and other types of sort of professional pro bono services you know if 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 you if you do something for your for your nine to five that um, that could have value in some way for for guys who are getting back on their feet um, you can contact our, our our folks through the info on the website it's on there somewhere <laughs> also, I think it's the, the either the volunteer page or like the give now page um, we'll have like phone number, a web form, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's there's a lot of different there's a lot of different more more relationally connected and embedded ways to serve too besides just serving a meal right yeah and also i was going to say um you know I, through me with the outreach that i do here as well you can contact me um kirk wise here um extension 145 and our choir and band goes out we we, we share our experience with different churches in the area um and also i connect guys to local churches so if you're a pastor of a church or even a member of a church and you think it would be cool to have some of our guys be able to find your church as a home that's something we're looking for we don't want guys just to grow in recovery we want guys to grow spiritually and be connected to a church home as well so please feel free to do that as well and here's pal recovery so how can um, the local neighborhood the first district southeast baltimore um, care for their addicted neighbor and support what you guys are doing? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you so much. We, um, we really try to be a outstanding community member. Um, we're totally committed to our community. We own buildings in our community. Um, we have uh, staff that you mentioned outside. Um, uh, we hire in our community. Um, uh, we are very proud of our block. We keep it clean. Um, we um, have adopted the local, uh, uh, small local park, and um, we work with our community association. Um, that's what we do, and we take it very seriously. We have uh, community patrols. We walk uh, every day, three times a day. We walk uh, the square block or two around our community to ensure that um, our community is uh, safe and um, uh, I, we're not law enforcement officers, but we just wanna make sure that our role in the community is well thought of and that we're attending um, to any of our clients in the area. And then once a day we walk about uh, half a mile around. Um, so we're constantly checking and screening our community. Um, uh, that's what we do, so I, I just wanted to say that. Um, uh, we would welcome community members um, saying to those who are addicted, who need help, um, if they wish to come up and get cards, if they wish for us to do outreach anywhere, we have just brilliant outreach staff. Um, uh, we, will, we will print materials for any community member who wants it so that they can hand uh, something in print to those who need help. Um, uh, we encourage them, for anyone who needs help, to call, uh, to have that person call. Unfortunately, if someone else calls for a person, we can't really, because of confidentiality right. and whatnot, we can't really do that. We'd love to do it, we can't. We encourage anyone who sees someone in need on the streets uh, to tell them that we're here for them. Um, uh, we ourselves and our staff, including me, when we see someone on the street, ask if they need help and if there's anything that we can do. Sometimes it's just give them a little food. Uh, uh, sometimes it's give them a ride over to um, uh, uh, a shelter. Um, sometimes it's get them into treatment immediately. Mm. It's the person's choice. Um, but we try to encourage everyone to say that we will help 
Um, and again, if there's any community neighborhood that wants printed material, by all means, we will give you we will give you the printed material to hand out. Mm-hmm. Um, we work with a variety of different um, you know agencies who are doing great work across the city. Um, and because fentanyl has really affected the well-being of our clients in a, in a significant way, um, we started to do outreach um, at various points across the city to just build trust with people who are so devastated by mm. the fentanyl epidemic, to just build enough trust with them so that eventually if they see us, uh, you know, week after week, they might consider giving treatment a try. And here's the same question and answer with the Broadway Center. So I always love to ask um, how people that live, because the audience that listens to the podcast lives in the immediate area. So how can um, local residents play a part in being helpful? How can they care for people that are facing addiction? I mean, I think one of the phenomenon that's existed for a very long time, decades really, is the not-in-my-backyard kind of feeling that I think a lot of residents have when they pass by a clinic. And some of that is because of, of the stigma associated with violence and drug crime and just seeing a group of people outside of a building can you know, make a whole, you know, whole residential community very nervous. I think that there is there are programs where the people actually need them where they actually live is a good thing um, you know we could we could have a different system where all these clinics no longer exist in the communities by which the patients live but I think you will then miss a whole group of people that that need care so I think from the community standpoint I think it's helpful if if they get to just know know the patients because they live there I mean like you said many of the patients just live they're their neighbors and to support them when they say they're going to treatment or mm-hmm. Or, you know, if, you know, if there's a conversation with another person and they're saying, oh, that clinic, oh, yeah, all those people are outside that clinic and that kind of thing, that there, there's some harm to, to not knowing everything that you should know about a clinic before they talk about it because that other person may want to get treatment themselves or may want to send their son to treatment or, mm. you know, the way that we talk about treatment is really important. Adding to the stigma. Adding to the stigma, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the, the evidence is pretty clear that um, the presence of addiction treatment facilities in neighborhoods actually reduces crime, you know, improves neighborhood uh, health indicators, reduces cost and crime and all of that kind of stuff. The corner stores are actually much more of a magnet for, for crime and grime and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, our, our programs are actually improving the community. We're making treatment accessible and actually without our programs, things would probably be a lot worse um, around here. And I I think as Dr. Parekh said, you know, you would want to just encourage people to come to 9-11, you know, I mean, that's what I'll say to to people I run into on the street now, you know, come come on up and see me Mm -hmm. and, you know, the Broadway Center tomorrow and, you know, get off the corner here and come in and we'll see what we can do. There's one final person that I want to introduce you to, and that's Megan. Megan is not working on addiction recovery, nor is she addicted to any substances, uh, but she did have a concern when it came to the opioid epidemic, and it relates to pain treatment 
and the new laws going into place related to opioids. So uh, just take a second, listen to her concern. Um, it's a really interesting perspective, and I thought we would close off with that. Hi, uh, my name is Megan Karenfell. I have lived in Baltimore for seven years in the Canton and Highland Town Patterson Park areas, moved all around those areas for a little while. Um, I am a patient advocate, uh, mainly for patients with rare diseases um, and just patients with chronic pain. Um, I've also been a chronic pain patient myself, um, mm -hmm. so I have you know experience dealing with um, you know helping provide care and helping uh, patients get care and receiving care myself. So when I put this post up on Facebook, mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned that there has been because of the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. There's been um, some negative ramifications that Absolutely. you've seen. Absolutely. Um, so I actually I've for. I want to say about eight to ten years um, I've been working with with patients in some capacity and um, the amount of patients that are committing suicide are increasing um, a lot of them say that they can't get their pain meds and they don't want to live anymore because they can't deal with the pain um, insurance companies in the last couple of years have stopped covering alternatives to opioids so patients are more likely to use opioids that they don't need because non-opioid uh, pain creams and things are, are not accessible financially to them. Um, patients have to go to three, four, five pharmacies because the um, pharmacies are not allowed to order the amount of opioids needed for their patients. Um, so patients have to go all over town. I mean, a disabled person can't go and wait at five different pharmacies. I mean, it's, it's a deterrent. So some patients are actually turning to heroin and illegal substances and they're not controlled they don't know what kind of dosing they're getting but they have no other options um, they, they can't function without some sort of medication um, and you know that they're in between a rock and a hard place and some doctors can't prescribe them anymore the medical institutions even, even if a patient's been on a dose for 10 years and they're stable they make them lower the dosage because you know they're afraid of they're, and they're and they're taking patients off of benzodiazepines and other drugs that supposedly interact with opioids but in patients that have been using them for a long time it's not a danger as somebody who would be starting this medication new um, so a lot of patients that um, were previously stable are no longer stable because their treatment plans are changing based on the new laws based on you know and and the research on the opioid epidemic is um, that patients who are, are new or are um, you know if somebody sprains an ankle and they get an opioid unnecessarily those are the people who are more apt to get addicted um, the studies say only you know less than three percent some studies say one percent some studies say 2.5 whatever uh, patients that are using opioids for their intended purpose get addicted so it's a very low number um, but it, it seems that um, almost all patients are being impacted in some way or another by these new laws. Hmm. Megan is the ninth voice included in this episode. And I think that that's enough. <laughs> We've covered a lot of different things. As you know, this is a research project, personal research project for me as I am looking to care for people in our neighborhood. And as I go through this research process, I figured that this could be beneficial to the entire neighborhood to know what exists, how people are cared for. So thank you for waiting, listening for 52 minutes. Um, 
I, I never like to let the episodes go this long. I probably shouldn't have done uh, six different interviews. Um, and actually, there was a few other people that were open to being interviewed. So um, I, I hope these these this thing is helpful to you and, and that um, maybe it's got some entertainment value, but maybe it's also, um, uh, hopefully, it's educational and it will equip you as you try to care for your neighbor. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. I want to say a special thanks to Haven City Church for sponsoring the I Love Humans podcast. It's uh, a blessing to have their underwriting and support as well. If you like what you're hearing, uh, please share this with a neighbor and we will see you next time.